You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So, Queen Elizabeth of England came to power at age 25. Three years into her reign, smallpox left her with facial scars and partial baldness for the rest of her life. And as she aged, she lost so many teeth that her speech actually became impaired. But I'm sure you have, but have you ever actually seen a picture or a painting or a portrait of Queen Elizabeth I? Here is a few. She was almost always portrayed as eternally youthful and beautiful. She never aged. Uh, And her secretary of state wrote this. Many painters have done portraits of the queen, but none has sufficiently shown her looks or charms. Therefore, her majesty commands all persons to stop doing portraits of her until a clever painter has finished one in which all other painters can copy. Her Majesty, in the meantime, forbids the showing of any portraits which are ugly until they are improved. So essentially, something called the Mask of Youth was created, and every other portrait was to comply with its standards. And in a time when feminine youth meant the ability to produce an heir, Elizabeth cared deeply about image management. And not much has changed, culture at least, over the last 500 years when it comes to that. Celebrities, high schoolers, Photoshop, social media. If there is one thing most of us deeply care about, it is a doctored and carefully curated image. But the irony is that that is exactly the opposite of how God works. Where human beings are compelled to wear a mask to guard their power... God rejects all distortions of his image as impediments to being rightly worshipped. Here is God's version of image management. There shall be no images of him conceived by the human brain or or created by the human hand because there must be a preservation of his perfection. See, if the first word or the first commandment prohibits the worship of anything other than God. The second word or commandment prohibits the worship of any version of God that is less than God, specifically through images. Now, before Moses even came down from Mount Sinai to deliver the law to Israel, they had already broken the second commandment. And Aaron received the gold from the people's hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people saw, sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, there's something important here. Aaron does not construct this calf because he believes it is a different God. Look at what it says. Tomorrow shall be a feast day to Yahweh. So Israel is going to feast and sacrifice before an image that is said to represent the one true God. 
But there's no way this calf could represent God. In fact, its very essence lies about who God is. It's small. God is immense. It's destructible. God is indestructible. It's created. God's eternal. It's of selective value. God's of imminent value. It's location bound. God is omnipresent. The list goes on. And yet, have you ever wondered why Aaron chose a calf? Like, why not a bird or a lion? Why not some other animal? Israel has just been rescued from Egypt, and they are going to Canaan. And one of the principal gods, one of the principal deities of Egypt was the bull god Apis, and the supreme head of the Canaanite pantheon was the bull god El. So bull worship was all the rage in the region. So the Israelites are in this in-between place. They're fresh from Egypt. They're going to Canaan. And so Aaron conceives of a God of his own imaging that produces a non-threatening, approachable version of the principal gods of the surrounding region. This is our challenge. We take the desires of our day and we sort of fashion them into a pseudo-Christian version to make it both palpable and appealing. And this goes wrong in a lot of different ways, but the biggest area it goes wrong is that it puts God in a box. We love to box God in. See, our challenge is not so much the metal images, but the mental ones. Mental maps that we have created to define God to our own liking, to the culture senses, to something and someone that will appeal to all people all the time. And we do this constantly, right? Our culture is individualistic, and we have a Christian version of this. I don't need anyone else on the journey with me. It's just me and God. We have our thing. They have theirs. That appeals both to me and my coworker. The issue, of course, is then you end up making God into a literal image of yourself. And, of course, God cares about you, but caring about you is the exact opposite of leaving you to your own devices, To neglect the body of Jesus, the church, is to neglect Jesus himself. It's untenable that someone would have an encounter with God and never associate with his family. Our culture is also a consumeristic culture. And we have a Christian version of this. We come to church to get something from the church. We come to God to get something from God. Similar to a shopping mall where I go to a mall to receive a good from a store. That appeals to me and my neighbor. But this makes the church a place not a people, and I can disregard it when I'm done using it. It highlights receiving grace without actually being transformed by it. And of course we come to receive God, receive from God, but not like a shopping mall, more like a parent or a friend. And then maybe a little closer to home, we have what some would call the God of evangelicalism. You are a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. This resembles something of a minimum requirement country club. Pray this prayer, pay these tithes, you are good to go. And this is problematic because in many ways the goal, the goal is not to get you to the kingdom of heaven, but to get the kingdom of heaven into you. And this God eliminates any actual discipleship and subs in a minimum entry level requirement. And of course, we need to be saved from ourselves, from sin, and from the wrath of God. But we are saved into a kingdom, into a family, for a renewed purpose that reorients our entire life, not just the afterlife. 
And then there's the God of activism, the Christian version, which is doing a lot for God is what it means to love God. And this image typically makes a lot of people a villain and me the hero. It easily divides the world into good and bad people and politics is the game we're all in. It's striking to me that when Jesus walked the earth in the midst of serious political upheaval, he never took on Rome, the world's greatest imperial power. He stayed up in the northern part of Galilee, which at that time was remote and very irrelevant. And of course, we exist for the sake of others, and the litany of and the litany of issues in our day are directly addressed by the triune God. But our involvement with those things does not determine our standing before the Father. It merely highlights how the Father has wired us to engage his world. And here is the thing with mental maps. It's not always about them being completely wrong. It's about them being utterly incomplete. A God who never experiences anger at the world's injustice has nothing to say to you about what has been done to you. And a God who never shows mercy is a God who is perpetually angry at his children, constantly looking for reasons to keep them out of the house. And a God who is always looking to materially bless you doesn't resemble Jesus, whose life was literally marked by suffering and whose life was ended in his prime by being publicly murdered. God is God. He is not our mascot. We do not use him for our ends. We do not manipulate him for our neighbor's sake. And we don't trumpet him for our political preference. We do not dress him up. We surrender. We surrender to love. Which is why for us, we ask the question, do we have an image of God? A visible representation of who God is. And the Sunday school answer is yes. It's Yes, yes. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He tells us, whoever has seen me has actually seen the Father. In the four different gospel accounts, the only times we hear the Father speak, he speaks about his Son. The only time we hear the Father speak in the four gospel accounts, he speaks about his Son. Jesus is the place from which we can definitively say who God is and what he is like. Anything that does not look like Jesus, sound like Jesus, directly contradicts Jesus, goes against the grain of Jesus, might be something, but it is not Orthodox Christianity. Now, Jesus doesn't walk among us today, at least not physically. So having lived 2,000 years past his life on earth, we are still infatuated with the question, what does God look like? But that is not the right question. The question to ask is, what does God sound like? Here is something that is crucial. In the worship of God, there is a distinction between sound and sight, between your eyes and between your ears. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses reminds Israel that when they were at Mount Horeb, then Yahweh spoke to you from the midst of fire, You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only voice. No form, only voice. In Exodus 34, Moses wrote on tablets, and what was written? Words, not pictures. 
Yahweh is the unseen God who speaks. He is word. So Peter Leithart says, with visible things, we assume a stance of criticism, command, and control. But God is not under our control. We don't judge him, but he, us. Now, this does not mean that we do not experience God through realities around us that we can visibly see and touch. Obviously, through the waters of baptism, we experience new life in Christ. Through the bread and the wine, we experience the grace and mercy of God. Through words spoken to us by brothers and sisters, we experience encouragement, care, and counsel of the Spirit. And even in creation, we experience the beauty of God. It does not mean that these things are mute. It does, however, mean that we relinquish serious control. And because we live between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus, we still live by ear. Listen, listen to me, Isaiah says, give ear and come to me that you may live. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, the father says. Maybe the strongest picture we see of hearing God versus seeing God is in the temple. Throughout the temple, there are art pieces everywhere. There are images that say something significant about God. And they don't point to themselves. They really do point away from themselves and to God. Even The cherubim, the angelic beings who stand over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies have wings over their eyes that tell us that we cannot see the living God in all his glory. But as one moves through the temple, room by room, further toward the Holy of Holies, the symbols decreased until the high priest meets God. And do you know what's in there? Nothing. Nothing. Making clear that nothing in all creation can stand in the place of God as God. What does God sound like is the right question. Because while we see God's hand, we cannot yet stand in front of his face. The light is too blinding. And so I want to take the remainder of time here. And by answering that question, what does God sound like through these two lenses? The first is biblically. Most people... Most people prefer reading over listening because reading demands far less from you than listening does. When I scroll through the latest articles on ESPN, they demand nothing from me and I have control. There is no voice on the other side of the screen. There's just ink on paper. But my wife requires something of me, namely my attention. The emotionally complex and uniquely wired human being right in front of my eyes knows if I'm paying attention to her. And the book and the article and the website doesn't know that. It can't know that. And our assumption is that because we read the Bible, we hear from God. That is a very faulty assumption. Some of us probably have more than one Bible. Two, three, five. But our ears still feel death. Why? Because reading the scripture is just not the same thing as listening to God. The scripture contains the story of God and it's the conduit to relationship, not the history book of civilization. If we want a living relationship with God, we have to become acquainted with his voice. And to become acquainted with his voice is to not only familiarize ourselves with the story, 
but to find ourselves in the story. The primary practice of language is not giving out information. It's being in relationship. And that doesn't change when the language gets written down. If we hear the scriptures impersonally, we are not hearing them correctly. An artist puts out her music so you can interact with it, experience the emotions that the words and rhyme and rhythm and beat evoke. The director puts out the film because there's a story he wants to share through plot and conflict and drama and conclusion, and that director longs for the viewer to find themselves in the story. The scriptures are almost entirely this kind of book. So when we ask the question, what does God sound like? We open the scriptures and realize that it's the grand story that we're in where he is constantly speaking. The problem is not that God's always silent, but that we're rarely listening. The Holy Spirit that spoke to the early church is still the spirit that speaks to us. That has not changed. God has not changed. The story of the Bible is the story of God speaking and the open invitation of God in the scriptures is to listen to him speak. In 1437, something happened that changed the course of history in relation to what I'm talking about. Do any of our history buffs know what happened in 1437? Nothing. That's a little surprise. We're getting closer. Yes. The movable, the movable type. Yes. The movable type. In 1437, Gutenberg invented movable type. And shortly after, books were printed and put in the hands of people across Europe. Now, this appears to be a great thing. Indeed, literacy is a great thing. I am pro-literacy. But, let's be clear. Reading does not produce the same outcome as hearing. When you pick up a Bible, there is great intent, intent on hearing God. The conviction of a disciple of Jesus is that God speaks reality into being. He speaks creation into shape and he speaks salvation into action. God speaks, things happen. I mean, look at you. You are here in this building at one level or another because God has spoken to you. We are, by the way, what happens when God speaks. Our challenge, however, is that reading sometimes never arrives at listening. Before there was what we now know as the Bible, there was the Torah. And people did not read the Torah, the law of the Old Testament. They did not read it. They heard it. People did not scan the Torah. They listened to it. The fact that the world has access to hundreds of millions of Bibles is a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. Our problem is that when we read the scriptures like we read the paper, and we look at pictures way more than we hear the sound of God echoing through history, this becomes a book. And just because it says the word holy on the front doesn't make it any more memorable than nightly cable news. When nearly all types of reading in 2024 are kind of in brackets, reading to yourself, there's no more listening, and the living voice is muted. The goal is not for you to know more of the Bible or even for you to read more of the Bible. The hope for you is to listen to the living God, and one of the primary ways that God speaks to us directly is through the Scriptures, primarily 
through the scriptures heard. The voice of God was not actually ever meant to be read. It was meant to be received. It was meant to be experienced. It was meant to be interacted with. Why? Because God speaking implies relationship. Words work differently when they are read than when they are heard. If someone wrote me a letter, that's one thing. If someone said that letter to me, the experience is very different. And this is important, not just because we live in a visually stimulated society, but trace it all the way back between the Greeks and the Hebrews. The Hebrews and Greeks differed in a lot of ways, but a big difference was their primary sensory orientation. The Hebrews tended to think of understanding as a kind of hearing, whereas the Greeks thought of it as a kind of seeing. So it's been observed that Greek culture revolved around two powerful events, the nude in sculpture and the drama in literature. So in theater, words are spoken, but the theater is primarily a visual experience. A religion with a lot of gods and goddesses requires statutes and pictures to distinguish them from each other. In Greek culture, the divine was looked at and it was talked about. The Olympian pantheon provided plots for drama. It provided patrons for the games and images for the temples. The activities and speech of the gods were conceived visually, a spectacle to which people were the spectators. The Hebrew slash Christian culture, on the other hand, revolved also around two events, except these two events were audio events. The unseen God speaking his word to Moses and the people at Sinai and the word becoming flesh in Jesus. So the Hebrews, followed by the Christians, did not allow images and produced no plays. They listened to the one God. His word made them who they were, called them into a pilgrimage. When they met together... When they met together, they did not look at a statue or watch a play. They heard a voice and answered with a prayer. The difference is radical. Hebrews and Christians alike, aware of the enormous difference between themselves and the Greeks, kept their distance from bodies and theaters. They knew how easy it was for the intensity of obedient listening to be diluted into amused Watching, and they took measure to guard their oral concentration. The sense they sensed that surrounding themselves with all those images reduced them to less than who they actually were. Eugene Peterson says, Religion as entertainment is always more attractive, but it is also less true. We have been given the scriptures not to read, but to hear. There is an author who has written the entire story in such a way that we become participants in it by hearing him, not by being a critic, a spectator, or a mere reader. The point of the scriptures is to tune ourselves to the rhythm and sound and beat of God's voice, to the very one who is speaking. Now, there are two terms that are translated as knowledge in English in the scriptures. One is gnosis and the other is epinosis. They don't mean the same thing. Gnosis means a certain intellectual insight. It can be positive, but also can lead to arrogance. 
Paul uses epinosis, which just has the prefix epi in front to mean above or about. And this means more than just realization. It almost always refers to revelation. In the case of gnosis, the deciding factor is the mind of the person who knows. And in the case of epinosis, the deciding factor is God revealing something. So here's an example. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of revelation, spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. Revelation or epinosis. He goes on. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The difference between biblical head knowledge, which is gnosis, and real revelation, which is epinosis, is enormous. Revelation changes something in me. It takes hold of my mental categories and makes the matter in hand become absolutely critical. Head knowledge alone is dead, even though it's not inherently bad. It's good to know what's in the Bible and what our creed proclaims, but that is just the beginning. Our problem is that we know everything theoretically and put almost nothing to action. God is not meant to be read about, or he, and he's not even meant to have a knowledge of inherently. He's meant to be known, loved, and pursued, which leads to the last point, experientially. To Thomas, Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see and still believe. Believing is seeing. When you are a baby in the womb, what is the first thing you hear? A mother's voice. And it's one of the only things that you can hear, but of course you can't see her. So when a newborn comes out into the world, traumatized by birth, removed from the safety and comfort of the womb, what is the thing that calms the cry? It is not the mother's face because a baby is almost functionally born blind. It is a mother's voice. A growing fetus hears the voice of their mother for nine months, singing, playing, laughing, talking, and that voice grows faintly familiar. And how then does a child learn words? Not by reading them first, but by hearing them. How does a child know what certain letters sound like? By hearing them, not reading them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow. To follow Jesus first requires acknowledging something so obvious to us that it feels silly to say out loud, but so relevant to us that if we miss it, we miss everything. And that is that Jesus is personal. God is not interested in revealing facts like an encyclopedia about himself. He's interested in revealing his heart to us. God is relational at the core. And so whatever is said, whatever is revealed, whatever is experienced is personal and relational. There is nothing, nothing purely functional about God. Everything about God, everything from beginning to end is personal. God being the Trinity is inherently personal. He is no other way. And so I am a person. Every word I hear, every interaction I have, everything in the story pulls me in and involves me because God is relational. It matters to my core identity and deeply and drastically affects who I am 
and what I do. Do, are you trained? Do you know how to listen to the voice of Jesus in your life? Nearly five years ago, I walked into a trailer at Whittle Springs Middle School, and I met a woman named Florence. She was the ASL teacher at Whittles, and to this day, I think she might be an angel. And I am not saying that facetiously. And I was in her classroom, and she came to me and said, Pastor Wes, I was picking up something from Panera the other day, and I met a man who was also there picking something up when we struck a conversation. And I felt the Lord say to me, give this man Wes's number. And I did. And I just told him, God said, I should give you this man's number. So call him. Over the years, Florence has developed an ear for listening to the voice, a place in her home every day where she meets with God, a place in the trailer after every second period where she would meet with God, a place after the buses arrive at 350 where she would meet with God. And one day, that man who had my number called me out of the blue. His name was Jay. He has radically altered my view of encountering God even when life circumstances veil God's face. Jay follows Jesus with more passion than I know what to do with it. And he does that because he was literally spared. He was not a former drug addict, but he was a former drug dealer. And he dealt very, very big. Moved hundreds of thousands of dollars in product. Uh, owned multiple new vehicles. Was rich in cash, wealth, and street credibility. God met him in a profound way. Resurrected his life completely. He sold every car he had. Gave away all the drug money and walked away from it all. Two and a half years ago, someone was caught on a simple drug possession. And through a series of events, Jay was one of the big fish that they caught. Even after he had walked away a considerable time ago, he was thrown under the bus and sentenced to five years in federal prison. And I met with him at a coffee shop two weeks before he was bound to federal prison with just the clothes on his back, his three kids and wife left behind. And he looked at me with tears streaming down his face and said, God has given me a new assignment. It's to make inmates my friends and introduce my friends to the father's voice. Now, how does Jay know that? Well, every day at noon, Jay walks the street and prays. Every day at noon, Jay walks the community and listens every single day. I did it with him for 12 months. He knew the faintly familiar voice. Three months into being in prison, he started a prayer ministry and a worship service. A hundred inmates every night right before lights out. They would gather to reflect on who God is and what he had done for each of them personally. He held Bible studies twice a week. Testimonies were shared. Prayers prayed. Songs sung. And then one evening, one evening, there was a prompting of Jay's. He got up and he heard the faintly familiar voice. I think we need to pray for a mass exodus. That's what he said. I'm not sure what it means, but God is inviting us to pray for a mass exodus. We're going to plead with the Father to open the prison doors. So every night for four months, that prayer was offered to God. And underneath that prayer was that God would do something so miraculous, there would not only be no denying his existence, but much more. There would be no denying his power and his love. Eight months into his sentencing. The Federal Bureau of Prisons released a memorandum stating that if you were a non-violent offender and this was your first offense, you would be released from prison earlier than your current sentence. 
Men who had 10 years left on their sentencing saw their prison door open and they walked out free singing, God is still in the business of setting people free. And I met with Jay over Christmas to hear about that. And I asked him point blank, what was it like to experience that? And he said, for me, it was amazing, but I was half expecting it. Because God had already done it in my life and God sent me to that prison. And so if I was going to be there, it was going to be a house of worship. And if I was going to be set free, it was going to be an act of God. But then he said, but for others, their faith became sight. Believing was seeing. To know that God sets people free is one thing. To experience being set free is quite another. And we started this teaching by saying that God will not be dumbed down by an image. And here's the truth. No one can see God and live right now. But if you flip to the end of the Bible, we read in Revelation that John is describing the end of all things. And in 22 chapters, he uses the phrase, I saw 33 Times He sees lampstands and bowls and beasts and elders and dragons and lambs and riders on white horses. And we would expect, actually, for the language of seeing to be in the prophets in the Old Testament. But it occurs more times in Revelation than in all of the Old Testament prophet books combined. And the culmination of John's seeing occurs in chapter 21, where he witnesses the descent of the new Jerusalem and God seated on the throne, declaring that all things are being made new. And on the day that God makes all things new, we will finally see him. And we will finally reflect him perfectly as we were created to do. The time of seeing is not yet, but we who believe, who have not seen, are the blessed ones. And one day we will behold him face to face in all of his glory and all the lesser versions, all the mental maps that we have created, whether physically or intellectually, will topple. And this is the vision that we will see and this is the sound that we will hear. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And also the living creatures and of the elders. The number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever." And ever. And until that time of faith becoming sight, we live by ear. And our faith is sight. Learning to hear the voice of God, hungering for more of his intimacy, comes through speaking and through hearing. It comes through listening and it comes through living. Let's pray. Father, as much as we long to be in relationship with you, you long for it so much more. So much more. 
And we long to hear your voice personally, communally. As a church, our ache and desire is for intimacy so that we might go out in power to a world that is aching for that same intimacy. Father, I pray that we not just know it, but that your voice becomes faintly familiar to us. And more than just longing to see you, we long to be with you. Would you make that longing a reality in our lives? Would you meet us? Would you meet us in the place of silence where we might have given up on hearing from you? And would you mature us? Would you grow us up? Would you speak to us like a father speaks to a child? And the lies that we hear so constantly that we tell ourselves, that the world tells us would be drowned out by the voice saying, this is my beloved child. I am well pleased with you. Let that be the overriding voice. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.